Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Hey, everybody. Uh, we got a great one today. And this time, I mean it. And this time, I mean that. Because... Uh, Steve Schmidt is, uh, I'm interviewing him, and it's a great interview. I just, we've done it. So this is going to be fairly short, my, my introductory uh, remarks. A couple things. Trump somehow is getting worse and worse. He is invested in not learning from his mistakes. Because if he learned from his mistakes, that would mean he made some mistakes, and since he's incapable of making mistakes, he didn't make any, and therefore he can't learn from them. That's a good human being. Another thing, uh, <laughs> Obamagate. He decided, I know, I'll put Obama on gate. That's what I'll do. Not everyone who supports me will think it's a huge thing, but most of them, most of them, and you heard Phil Rucker uh, <laughs> ask him about this. This is perfect. Mr. President, in one of your Mother's Day tweets, you appear to accuse President Obama of the biggest political crime in American history by yeah. far. Those were your words. What crime exactly are you accusing President Obama of committing? And do you believe the Justice Department should prosecute him? Uh, Obamagate. It's been going on for a long time. It's been going on from before I even got elected. And it's a disgrace that it happened. And if you look at what's gone on, and if you look at now all of this information that's being released, and from what I understand, that's only the beginning. Uh, some terrible things happened, and it should never be allowed to happen in our country again. And you'll be seeing what's going on over the next, over the coming weeks. But I, and I wish you'd write honestly about it. But unfortunately, you choose not to do so. Yeah, John, please. Crime. What is the crime exactly that uh, you're accusing him of? You know what the crime is. The crime is very obvious to everybody. All you have to do is read the newspapers, except yours. What a child. This is, this is literally, I have a six-year-old grandson. This is literally something he would do. Put Obama on top of gate. <laughs> the thing that. That means something. Uh, also, <laughs> his statement on testing is friggin' hilarious. Let's hear that. We have more cases than anybody in the world. But why? Because we do more testing. When you test, you have a case. When you test, you find something is wrong with people. If we didn't do any testing, we would have very few cases. They don't want to write that. It's common sense. What a friggin' dope. 
What a friggin' dope. You know, um, we have the most deaths in this country because we report people who died. We don't report all the people who died of COVID. We don't categorize. Well, wait a minute. Okay, scratch all that. What a terrible, terrible, terrible person. Okay. <laughs> Today we have Steve Schmidt, and he's one of the founders of the Lincoln Project, along with George Conway and others, which are Republicans who have said, oh, my God, is this guy horrible. That's really what the name of the group is, but they've couched it in Lincoln because Lincoln was the first Republican president, and he was, a, you know, kind of compared to Trump, a really good guy and everybody else who ever lived in our country. But anyway, so uh, this is a great interview, and I know that you're going to enjoy it. Before I, I, I go to go to Steve, please subscribe. Subscribe to uh, the Al Franken podcast. That way you'll get all, you'll just every new one comes up, you'll get it, and you'll have all, all the other ones, all the other 50-some that we've done. And by the way, this is the beginning of season two. We're opening with Steve Schmidt. Steve Schmidt is uh, joining me. Uh, Steve, I guess, was first known as the campaign manager for John McCain's uh, 2008 presidential campaign and uh, kind of famous for enthusiastically uh, recommending Sarah Palin to then-Senator McCain's, uh, to him, as a game-changing pick for running mate, but he has that almost fully put behind him. Right, Steve? God, I hope so. Yeah. And I know that you kind of uh, severed, or McCain did, severed your relation because you were so critical of uh, Palin afterwards. Am I right? He did. It was a, uh, look, it was a difficult time. And I think that when um, you look back on that period after the campaign was over, Nicole Wallace and I were just the first two people to see what everybody saw eventually was that she was manifestly unfit, serially dishonest and just corrupt as hell. And I think you saw all the mental instability that played out over the ensuing years. And and what I was always most fascinated about with her was that all of the people who should have known better that up until that moment, whether you agreed or disagreed with them, they were, they were serious people. And um, they gave her a pass completely. And you had some of the leading lights in the Republican firmament saying that, no, she'd be a terrific candidate for president in 2012. It was shocking. You know, unfortunately, she uh, wrote a book. She went out and talked about things and they were dishonest. And my view was that the statute of limitations of what went on in the campaign was over when she started talking about it. And then also, the reality is, is that what goes on in these campaigns, just as a matter of the historical record, it all becomes known. Now, there are some things about that campaign that only three or four of us knew that'll never be in the public sphere. And that's as it is. Could you tell us what those three things yeah. were? <laughs> no. Um, oh, yeah, but, 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 when you, but when you act like she acted on a plane full of 60 people. But yeah, it's, um, you know, I had a complicated relationship with John McCain. You know, they say fathers and sons have complicated relationships, and I suppose that's true as a son and a father. But I 
It was the most complicated relationship I've ever had with anyone in my life. I, I loved him. I respected him. Um, he could make you more angry in a moment, you know, than any other person I've, I've ever met. He was as frustrating as hell. He was a, he was a great man. And I think that, you know, when we remember John McCain, it's, he was magnificently flawed. He would have been the last person to ever want to be lionized as some type of secular saint. It's not who he was. Um, his magnificence was 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 deeply rooted in his in his flaws, and I I got to spend a you know season of my life in, involved with him. I'd been a top strategist on President Bush's campaigns in '04. I'd run the two Supreme Court confirmations. I ran Arnold Schwarzenegger's campaigns, you know. But in my career, you know, that was a there was an intense personal experience. It was an intense professional experience. And really, since 2008, 2012, I've done everything I I possibly can as somebody who's been involved in politics to warn about the ugly tide that was spreading, the know-nothingism, the nativism. Uh, Speaking of Nicole Wallace, the the movie Game Change on HBO, Julianne Moore was fabulous. Uh, Woody Harrelson played you, shaved his head for that. I have a different ending for that movie. You want to hear it? I do. Okay, so toward the end, very, very much toward the end, Nicole Wallace on election night comes up to you and says, I didn't vote, right? Now, did that happen? that happen? It did. Did she say that? She did. Okay. And Woody Harrelson is you, and he's, like, absorbing that, that she didn't vote, and that's because she coached Palin. She was Charger Palin for a while, and she couldn't vote. So here's my ending for it. This is my ending. She says to to you, Steve Schmidt, I didn't vote. And then you say, oh, I didn't vote either. And then uh, someone's walking by, a staffer, overhears you guys and says, oh, I didn't vote. And then another p- person crossing says, I didn't vote. And another, I didn't vote, I didn't vote, I didn't vote. Then McCain is in the room and he explodes. He said, you didn't vote. You didn't vote. I voted for Obama. We can't have her anywhere near the White House. <laughs> <laughs> that was my preferred ending. So I, I'll tell you what my suggestion was for the ending. And this is a story that a lot of people really you know, don't know is that. So in the movie, it recounts in, in the book that I would not let her give a concession speech and it was totally inappropriate. Uh, it's an important moment. The first person that matters that addresses Barack Obama in that instant as Mr. President-elect is John McCain, right? It's the, it's the losing side that gives legitimacy to the system. There's a scene in the movie where you say exactly, where Woody Harrelson, as you says that, exactly. Yep. She didn't really seem to appreciate history. I was flying out of Phoenix at one in the morning and I was heading down. I was going to spend a couple of weeks in the in the Virgin Islands. And my last official act in that in that campaign was this. I got a call from the deputy campaign manager. President-elect Obama was on the stage. We were in the bar, had said goodnight to McCain. And I get a call. The call says that Sarah Palin is heading with her entourage to the stage to give her concession speech. And literally the second she stepped up onto the first step of the rise or onto the stage, 
was when I gave my final order, which is then pull the plug on the generator. So as she stepped up on that stage to deliver her valedictory, all the power went out. And that's how I always thought the ending should have been. But, but of course, she had a few more years left in her. I think that would have been a better ending. Right. But, yeah, yeah. Because in this, you just read her the riot, the historical riot act that no 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 one has ever done it, but the the losing candidate confers legitimacy on the new president. By the way, uh, Elizabeth Drew, I talked, I was talking to her a couple nights ago. Told her I was going to interview you, and she said, "Ask this question: How did he become so articulate?" I don't. I don't know that I am. I don't know that I am. I. I, I do think that um, if you're involved in politics and you're liberated to say what you actually believe, and I wish there were more people who fell into that category, you know, you you have a lot less energy where you're worried about what not to say, and you know, I just do my best to you know talk about the things I I know to be true that I believe and. This is one of the most significant events we faced in our history, and we, we have never, never, ever had a president as outmatched, as inept, as incompetent, as rancid, as corrupt, as indecent. That's what I mean. Look at all the adjectives you strung together there. That's being <laughs> articulate. Now, I, I want to get to the Lincoln Project, yep. and I want to get to what you've been most articulate on, which is Donald Trump. So let's do that. Let's do that. Let's start by comparing Lincoln and Trump as an exercise here. Now, Lincoln, of course, uh, was the president who led this country during the Civil War and emancipated the slaves. Then there's Trump. I think I've always liked this story about Lincoln is the great Union battle captain, William Tecumseh Sherman, the, the general who ravaged the South. The beginning of the war, he was a Union colonel. He was one of Grant's best friends. And he wrote in a letter that he thought America, the country, the Union was doomed because it had elected an uneducated backwoods barbarian named Abraham Lincoln. And so Sherman would become acquainted with the man over the war. And he saw him for the last time at the Union headquarters at City Point with Grant where Lincoln talked about his vision for national reconciliation, gave them very strict instructions to stay out of politics, leave that to him to accept the military surrender. And then, of course, Lincoln was gunned down not long after. And when Sherman was asked to reflect on the life of Lincoln, uh, he said that he had met all the great men of the world, that he had met the kings and the emperors and the industrialists, uh, but he had never met any man who possessed more of the qualities of greatness and goodness than Abraham Lincoln. And so that was somebody who the character of the man was revealed by the testing, by the, by the crisis. And he rose to a level that ultimately saved the country. Um, and when you look at the two great presidents in the history of the country, Lincoln and FDR, what they both had were reserves of empathy and decency. Uh, they were considerate to people. They were, they were kind. They were, they were big. They had suffered immensely in their, in their own lives. And I think had an understanding of the human condition. And, and really, they both of them 
the great Republican president and the great Democratic president. Uh, Roosevelt. The, right, Roosevelt. The two, yeah. the two men who, you know, one saved the Union and the one led the Union that saved the world in the Second World War. Uh, both, both of these men were extraordinary leaders. And when you look at leadership, Donald Trump possesses every frailty of the human condition. Uh, he possesses none of the heroic virtues and in, in all of man's pathologies. And he is almost an anti-leader in a moment of great crisis and testing. And that's new for this country. We've never, we've never experienced that before. Yeah, I mean, he. this is the first real crisis he's had, and I don't think he's handled it well. Um, you, you're talking about Lincoln. Trump has compared himself to Lincoln a, a number of times. Once at a rally in Dallas, he said, uh, Lincoln never carried Texas. He couldn't carry Texas. I, I don't know how much history Trump knows. But Texas was part of the Confederacy and was a slave state. So it isn't that big a brag. You know, he, he said that Lincoln was uh, treated very badly by the press and by everybody. But it's been worse for him. Well, it's just you've never seen that before. The constant whining and grievance, you know, grievance and injury is the high octane fuel of Trumpism. You know, he is America's greatest victim. You know, I I grew up in a time in the country, you know, in the night, you know, I'm 49 years old. I um, you know, came of age in the in a in a Republican party that had a real anathema to victim culture. You know, it was kind of the sense was culturally was get your shit together. You know, you're responsible for you. Um you know, it's not my fault. It's not my problem. Do the things that you're supposed to do to be successful. You look at someone like Donald Trump, he's just the antithesis of that. He is incapable of personal responsibility. Everything is an injury. He has no capacity to rise above even the smallest insult. He is a textbook bully, a narcissist, dishonest, at a level that is hard to articulate and just really somebody who is unfit at a mental level, at an intellectual level, in a moral level, when it comes to the exercising of his duties. And that's a real tragedy for the country and it will take a long time to recover from it. Okay, so now you just said you grew up at a time when the Republican Party uh, didn't like victimhood. Have you become a Democrat or just leave the De uh, Republican Party? I, I've left the Republican Party. I mean, part of my part of my con small C conservatism is, you know, uh, is is pragmatism. There are two major parties in the country right now. You know, certainly I, I think that the Democratic Party in this moment as an institution is is called to defend the American Republic, American democracy. From the, from the corruption of Trumpism. I'll be voting for Joe Biden. I'll be voting, you know, for Democratic candidates. I haven't joined the party yet. I haven't, I haven't ruled it out. I mean, we'll see how it all shakes out over the years ahead. Well, let's, let's take a short break. We'll be right back with Steve Schmidt. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. 
living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. You left the Republican Party in 2018. Um, I don't know how you stayed a Republican these years, frankly. And, and let me kind of explain that. It seems that, and I served in the Senate with a lot of Republicans, that the Republican Party, starting, I think, in 1964, became a number of bad things. And it's just gotten worse and worse. We've gotten a, this big partisan divide. For example, let's just talk about something like deficits. My experience was they really cared, my Republican colleagues really cared about deficits when Obama was president. But they weren't dealing good faith because they didn't really care about it because as soon as Trump got in, they did this huge, huge tax cut, most of which went to people at the top. And I would argue on the floor that this is going to create a, a giant deficit or it's going to increase the deficit by a trillion bucks. And they would say, oh, no, no, the increased economic activity. This has happened time and again, that when a Democrat is president, they, then they care about the deficit. And when a Republican is, it just explodes. I mean, and so what I'm kind of asking you is, like, what was it about Dick Cheney that you liked? I'll say this about Dick Cheney, which is largely true of Hillary Clinton, is that very difficult to find anybody who worked in close proximity to either of those two people over a 40-year career that has anything bad to say about them personally. He was a very decent, considerate person you know, to work for, though there are all manner of issues, including his views on executive power that I disagree on, have always disagreed on. And I've never worked for anybody that I've had 
100% alignment with. And I think you can look back over the last 40 years or 50 years, and you can find all manner of historical mistakes, whether they be Iraq, whether they be Vietnam. But my experience with someone when you work that closely, like you, someone who worked on your staff, is you really get to know the the fiber of the individual, the man, their their family. And, you know, my my relationship with you know, him was in was in that was in that space. You know, I grew up in New Jersey in a blue collar town in a middle class family. And my first election that I was conscious of was the was the 1980 election in the 80, 84, you know, 88 from where I sat as a as a kid in New Jersey, you know, that and you look at the arc of the country's history from 1965 to 1980, we had a lot of bad, turbulent years. And then we have a 20-year period, right, which is really almost a pinnacle of American prestige and power and recovery that begins with the Reagan presidency, uh, goes through the 41 presidency, and really through the Bill Clinton presidency. And I, I do think you know, there's an argument you can make that the most effective governance we might get in this country is a moderate Democratic president with a Republican Congress, because everyone seems to be most incentivized to adhere to principles. I just want to bore down a little bit more on this, because, I mean, you just saw every Republican except Romney vote to acquit this guy. And you see that the Republican Party now is Trump's party. Rush Limbaugh got the Presidential Medal of Freedom for a reason. Without Rush Limbaugh, I don't think there's a Donald Trump. My dad was a Republican all his life until 1964. And during the Civil Rights Movement, when we, we'd watch TV when we ate dinner, and when there's Southern sheriffs would put hoses and, and uh, dogs on demonstrators. My dad would point to the TV and said, no Jew can be for that. So he became a Democrat because of Barry Goldwater voted against the Civil Rights Bill. This Republican Party, it seems like it services the plutocracy. And we are now have this huge partisan divide. But I think that it started in 1964. We used to have Southern Democrats, and you know we, we had Democrats working with Republicans because of that. But now the Republican Party, they opposed health care, they opposed Medicare, they, they opposed the ACA. Um, you know, you have your Tom DeLays, and I know you grew up a moderate Republican. But uh, is what you're seeing now from the Republicans in the House and the Senate, does that give you any pause about having been a Republican all through this until 2018? Um, it gives me some pause, but I don't look at it from a... I think here's what I think. When the Civil Rights Act was passed in 1964, there were exactly three Republicans elected to federal office south of the Mason-Dixon line. So the, the segregationist party in the in the country was the Democratic Party. Until 64. And the <laughs> coalition that passed civil rights was an amalgam of northern 
liberal Republicans, moderate Republicans, and Northern Democrats. Between 1964 and, and today, you know, but really fully, you know, by the 1990s, the, the Republican Party had become rooted in the South. It, it, it became, you know, at its core, right, its hardcore was a, was a white Southern evangelical Christian party that in a way that I think was increasingly and always worrisome for me and, and something that I never liked, rejected, but you tolerate in, in campaigns because you're in a you're in a big coalition is the fusion of, you know, that Southern evangelical, you know, scam Christianity of the Franklin Grahams and the Jerry Falwell Juniors and the nut woman in the in the White House, you know, today. You know, but I but I came out of a Republican Party in, in my home state of Tom Kane and Christy Todd Whitman that was environmentally conscious, that was the responsible governing party. And there was still room for that vestigal Republican Party through the 2000s, even though its voice became smaller and smaller and smaller. And so, you know, Donald Trump's election to the presidency and then the total capitulation of the party. And and let's look at the most extreme example, right? Let's look at Lindsey Graham. Um, as, you know, John McCain's longtime sidekick, somebody who's heralded as a, you know, bipartisan leader, does the right thing, you know, and, and how completely, you know, he sold his soul to, to Donald Trump. And so, you know, I look at the party now with disgust, and there's a small group of us, you know, that have been very vocal, very consistent, speaking out about Trump from the moment he came down the in the escalator and for my part before. And, you know, and, and for me personally, Al, I, you know, I gave a speech in favor of gay marriage years before Barack Obama did, you know, much less significantly, obviously, but I did it in 2009. And, and there has always been a civil rights tradition inside the inside the Republican Party from its inception forward. But, you know, I don't feel that I have a place in in the party as it as it exists today. And though I was running, you know, campaigns at the highest level of the of the Republican Party from an activist base, you know, I was I was always like a lot of political consultants are. I, I was never an ideologue. You know, I was I was very much a I was very much a centrist. And if I was serving in the United States Senate um, or I was serving in high federal office, I have no doubt that I'd be able to sit down and do the job of the people's business and compromise, you know, with the person who's sitting who's sitting across the table from you. But uh, but I don't buy the notion that there's one inherently corrupt party and there's and there's one inherently decent party. I mean, if, if you think for a second that if there was a Democratic Trump, that you wouldn't see some of the behavior from some of your former colleagues that we see out of some of these Republicans. I, I just disagree with that. Steve, I have great contempt <laughs> for many of my former colleagues in the Democratic Party, and for good reason. So it's not about that. What I'm asking is a question about, they've been anti-science for a while, the party. You couldn't get any Republican when I was there to really step up on climate. In fact, McCain had been been good on that, but, you know, that ceased to be a major issue. Look, 
in uh, the Bush administration, you helped get Roberts through and Alito through, right? That was part of your yes. your job. Okay. Roberts is, is the author of Shelby County, which overturned the Voting Rights Act. My Republican colleagues were always on the side of voter suppression, essentially. You know, we tried in the Judiciary Committee to address that decision, and we couldn't. On climate, always push back. And on taxes and on just about everything that I, I feel like you kind of are on our side on. I'm wondering why it it took you so long. God, you're putting me on the couch here and um, getting me to talk about deep, deep feelings. Um, I'll, I'll be sorry. I'll be. I'll be. I'll be totally. <laughs> I think it has. I think it. To be honest, it has. It has something to do with this. So I, I grew up Catholic. I was confirmed by. Monsignor Theodore McCarrick, who was the acting bishop of the Metuchen Diocese in, in New Jersey. And, and many years later, when I was in the White House and was for a brief moment somebody, I so disgusted by the sex abuse scandals, I, I went to see McCarrick, who's now the cardinal. Now, of course, jumping ahead for listeners who don't know who McCarrick is, he became the first cardinal to resign in 600 years, and he was defrocked, and he was a serial sex abuser. And for me, during that period, the loss of my faith, right, understanding the magnitude of that corruption um, and the cover-ups and, and really the worst thing you could do to, to a child and my, my disgust with it. it. It was an important institution for me. And I, I think a lot of Catholics who are listening will understand what I mean by this. But I, but I lost my faith. From a, from a kid on, from a, from a little kid on, I love the history of our country. I, I love the story of America. I've never looked at the Democratic Party from the Republican side as an enemy institution. I looked at it as the opposition. I, I've never looked at both parties as entirely virtuous or entirely bad. I've had a set of principles that are rooted in a 20th century concept of conservatism that I've always believed. You know, when I was in an administration, I thought that George W. Bush should veto some of the deficit budgets that he that he signed. But all of the excesses of the Republican Party, there were, there was part of me, I think, a stubbornness that say like, I'll be goddamned if I'm going to let you know second institution that I'm deeply invested in be taken away from me be kicked out like I'll be the last guy out the door turning out the lights I'm not getting kicked out by Donald Trump and this band of of miscreants I'll fight I'll fight from within and there was a moment where there were people who were objecting to Trump to his vileness to his indecency and corruption, but by one by one by one by one, they they folded up, and and certainly by me, you know, the day I left the party and I wrote that and it got a lot of attention. It had been coming for some time. I, I was not a member in good standing. I was a dissident, I think, in the party to say the least for for at least a couple of years, and I, I had warned about the growing nativism and the 
populism and the know nothingness for, for years, for more than a decade before I made the decision. But it's not like I woke up one day and had an epiphany. You know, it's more like that I stayed inside for as long as I could in a party that I had spent a lot of my life working, working in. And so, you know, increasingly, I think when you look at the spending, the recklessness, the lack of a coherent national security strategy, all of it, right, that what I found attractive in, in Reaganism in the, in the 1980s, that none of that exists anymore. I mean, you know, what's inscribed on Ronald Reagan's grave is, is this. It says, in my heart, I know that man is good, that in the end, what is right will triumph over what is wrong. And there is worth and purpose in every life. That doesn't sound like Trumpism to me. So that's why, you know, I think it was a streak of stubbornness. It's not like I woke up one day and said, oh, my God, this is terrible. I, I stayed in the, the party that I had been in since I was 18 years old till it left me completely. And I, and I have no place in it, you know, today. And I stand opposed to it. And I want to see all of these people who know better and have watched this and capitulated, you know, the Susan Collins of the world. I want to see them defeated. I want to see them out of the United States Senate. I want to see them out of political power. We need something better. The country cannot indulge this level of stupidity and malice for very much longer before it puts us into not just temporary decline, but a permanent and precipitous decline. The Republican Party has become Trump's party. For sure. Okay. And in my mind, that makes sense because if you look at what he has appealed to, it's nativism, it's anti-science, it's racism. You know, it's, it reflects him. It's what George Wallace's presidency would have, would have looked like. He essentially put together a narrow electoral college victory, you know, and he's a Dixiecrat. That, that's what he is. That was able to then expand that base into, you know, some of the northern Midwest industrial states that have seen the manufacturing jobs disappear on a 20, 30 year basis. And, you know, the fact is, is that for the first time in history, you have, just as was the case at the fall of the Soviet Union, we're seeing declining life expectancies for white men, you know, 50 years old. Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of hopelessness in the country. And you know, he rode that narrowly into the, into the White House. But I, I, don't, I don't disagree with your, your assessment of that, right? There, there is no big tent Republican Party. I mean, in 1984, the Republican candidate won 49 states, with the exception of, of Minnesota, of course. But it's a narrow party that probably can't win a, a majority vote for president, can eke out an electoral majority for now. But the party is what you say it is. But Right. Should there be a, a right of center, normal, decent party in this country? Or is the choice, you know, increasingly between that and the Bernie Sanders wing of the Democratic Party? And what I'd say is, you know, I think Biden has a real potential to put together a broad coalition of people who disagree with each other on some things, but agree with each other on the essential thing, which is Trump's got to go. And there has to be a restoration of character and decency and goodness and civility and just competency into the White House. Yes, let's let's hope. Okay, we're going to take just a short break and we'll be right back with Steve Schmidt. 
If you're constantly on the hunt for a good deal, then you need Rakuten. Rakuten is the smartest way to save money when you shop because members get cash back at over 3,500 stores across every category, including fashion, beauty, electronics, home essentials, traveling, dining, and more. You're already shopping at your favorite stores. Why not save while you're doing it? It's a no-brainer. Get the Rakuten app now and join the 17 million members who are already saving. Cashback rates change daily. See Rakuten.com for details. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Your cashback really adds up. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. I had I, I interviewed George Packer, and he's read this Atlantic article that this has exposed a lot of our weaknesses as a nation. Of course. And one of those is this unbelievable partisanship, this tribal aspect of the politics that we're in, and sort of the cynicism. I think McConnell embodies that more than anyone I know, that it's all about power. This election, we can tip the balance in the Senate, and that's really important, obviously, very, very important in terms of judges and, and justice, but in, in terms of everything, really. And it's so crucial because Mitch McConnell, he is so cynical that he doesn't mind everyone knowing it. Cynicism is the right word, but his cynicism is profound. It's, it's a next-level cynicism. In, in the sweep of our history, he, he may be one of the most cynical people who's ever held a position of real power in this country. Um, he has shattered the norms of the United States Senate, uh, an institution that was once known as the greatest deliberative body in the world, certainly is no such thing today. And he subordinated a co-equal branch of government to the service of a New York City con man and reality show host. And he'll have destroyed his majority because of it. Uh, Democrats, I believe, will be in majority power in, in November. But he's done real damage to the country. And, and that's the thing. You know, I, I disagree with Bernie Sanders on a fair amount of things, but, but at least he's a believer. I, I think you'll acknowledge that Bernie's people are not a majority of the Democratic Party. Yes. And and God bless Bernie uh, for being right on so many things. I think one of the things that Packer talked about was the tremendous gap in wealth in this country. But Republicans, they've been on the side of the plutocracy for so long and against the ACA every friggin' step of the way. Thank God for John McCain putting his thumb down. You're an incredibly smart guy. You're an operative. Operatives aren't idealistic. But haven't you looked at the Republican Party over, you know, I don't know when to start, but I kind of start 
with Gingrich. As I said, I think there's a reason that Rush Limbaugh got the Presidential Medal of Freedom because without Limbaugh, you wouldn't have Trump. That's when the lying started, right? That was it. Rush Limbaugh got 20 million people a day and lied and lied and lied. And then he gets the Presidential Medal of Freedom. I wrote a book called Rush Limbaugh is a Big Fat Idiot and Other Observations. Then I wrote a book called Lies and Lying Liars Who Tell Them, A Fair and Balanced Look at the Right, which is about Fox and also about Republicans. And again, I have reason to um, have really negative thoughts about a lot of my former Democratic colleagues. But that doesn't change the clarity with which I see that the Republican Party is a bad actor and has been for quite a while. I mean, look at the look at the Supreme Court that took the Wisconsin that, you know, making them vote during the primary when COVID was was thick in in Milwaukee and Wisconsin. It was a case that had been decided by the district court, by the trial court, and by the circuit court. And yet, on a 5-4 basis, they voted so that people had to go in because their absentee ballots had to be in before Election Day. This is a party that is all about voter suppression, all about making people have ID. It's all about gerrymandering. This court, this court decided that the Supreme Court has no jurisdiction over state legislatures gerrymandering. That's completely cynical. You, you'll get no argument back from me that the Republican Party, lock, stock, and barrel, you know, as we look and surveil it today, has become all of the things that you say it is. I, no, no disagreement, no disagreement here. You know, there's there's been one governor who's passed climate change legislation in this in this country in a in a really significant way. That was Arnold Schwarzenegger, member of the Republican Party in 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 California. That wing of the Republican Party has long been endangered in my career, but it still existed and it doesn't exist at all anymore. And that's and that's too bad. And which is why, you know, so many of those people out there who voted for that wing of the Republican Party are now Democrats or vote with Democrats or independents who will vote with the with the Democratic candidates. But um, no, it's listen, it's remarkable when you when you consider that, you know, this is the country that you know, produced eight combat aircraft an hour, as was pointed out in a, in a recent column during the Second World War that can't make face masks now. You know, the country that invented the vaccine for polio and, you know, performed the first heart transplants and has put man on the moon and, and the first airplanes and automobiles. And, you know, that th- this country achieved its power and its status and its wealth because we honor science and scientists and we don't honor the things that we see, you know, out of the Republican Party, which is, you know, it's you, you look at 
you know, the introduction of Obamagate. It's just it's nothing but conspiracy theories, lies. I'm yeah. very worried about Obamagate. Are you concerned about that? I mean, uh, I don't know exactly what it is. I do not either. Uh, but but, but I, it must be terrible. Whatever it is. I would I would say this. I mean, it's 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 not just that you know you look at the Laura Ingrams and and these people and Judge Jeannie and it's not that they're pernicious, which they which they are, it, but it's but it's they've they've torn open the boundary between dimensions of reality. But they 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 literally exist now in an alternate reality. And it's just astonishing to watch, you know, as you have these million dollar hosts huddled up in their homes, urging people to go outside when the company is telling them to stay inside for another month. It's just it's just extraordinary to watch. But, you know, Trump Trump commands a vast propaganda network. His campaign is technologically sophisticated, you know, and, and all of this flows out through social media like an open sewer into the ocean polluting our civics and our and our discourse. And, you know, the reality is, you know, the United States survived, you know, three great threats to its existence, I think, um, in its history. You know, the, the, the first was the Civil War. The second was uh, the World War fascism and, and then ultimately communism. And we prevailed. And part of the reason the country prevailed is that all of those competing systems were built on a foundation of lies. And whatever imperfections we are, there is a truth and a beauty to the founding premise of the country, though we haven't always lived up to it, which is that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with inalienable rights. The story of America is the story of expanding the promise of that statement to as many people as as possible, because it belongs to everybody, to 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 all of us. And and the, our founding fathers, of course, when they said all men are created right, equal, we're slave owners, right? That 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 hypocrisy. But in that moment in time, it was the most radically liberal document in world history. And though we look back on the hypocrisies contained in it. You know, the story of America, whether it was Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King climbing the steps of the Lincoln Memorial to collect the promissory note, as he said, that this is for us, that this is for us also, right? That this idea of the country, I think, is so, is so important to understand because, because Trumpism is antithetical to Americanism. And... And that's the battle that we have ahead, you know, that's going to that's going to play out here over the next six months. And, I, and what I hope is, is that there'll be a coalition of decent people from whatever party they came from who will say when we look at this, that this is wrong. And then we have to get, I think, as a country to focus on the things that we know need to be fixed. We're vulnerable to cyber attack and information warfare. The country's badly divided. There's huge income inequality. We have to fix these things. And, and we're, we're heading into a season where there's a real potential for political instability. When you get to 25, 30 percent, 
unemployment rates. When you see small bands of men for now armed with tactical rifles, dressed up as military fetishists in their, you know, backyard camo body armor getups coming into state capitals to intimidate, this is all bad stuff. And and the party that is responsible for it now is the Republican Party, and they got to be voted out of power. And I don't know if a, what, what will come from the ashes of defeat is something better, right? Because I, I think we, we need to have a functioning right of center party in this country. We don't need to have a Dixiecrat nativist party, but we do need that right of center party. I don't know what will come after it other than in this moment in time, it needs to be repudiated and defeated. Yeah. I mean, I really admire you. I think you're, I, I think you operate with integrity and I, the, the thing about the Catholic Church <laughs> was a great kind of an entryway into your hanging on with this Republican Party. Have you changed at all in terms of just looking, for example, on income inequality? The, the two justices that you helped get into uh, the court have been terrible on pretty much everything <laughs> regarding that in terms of labor they're the most pro-corporate court in history and i i don't understand why someone who and you're explaining it you had this emotional attachment but do do you feel like this party has become this party not just since Donald Trump was elected. Look, I, I don't I don't view the party as being on a continuum that there's no distinction between the Bush Republican Party and the Trump Republican Party. I, I think they're extraordinarily different. In 1944, Franklin Roosevelt invited the Canadian Prime Minister Mackenzie King. They were friends to the White House and they were talking and Roosevelt was laying out his vision for what the world would look like when the war was won. And he described what we would recognize today, starting with his vision for the United Nations, for liberalized trade, decolonialization. You, we would, we would, you would recognize what he, was, what he was architecting, what became the U.S.-led liberal global order. And what he said to King was that he had no ambition that this would last forever. Just wanted it to last as long as every person who was alive on the day the war was won was still alive. And so here we are, right? We had, we had 16 million men under arms. And you look at the World War II veterans at the memorial on the 75th anniversary of VE Day, right? There's a handful left handful of men and women who survived the, the Nazi death camps. We're at that hinge of history. And what, what I would argue is on a national security front, which is what's always, for me, been a really defining issue in, in my political views. The, the world vision that FDR architected, that Truman built, that was then maintenanced from Eisenhower through Obama by presidents of both parties, though they had disagreements, that, that era is at its end, right? That, that, that's the break that, that Trump represents. 
is with his refusal to articulate American values, with his refusal to function as part of an alliance, all of the things that he has done over three years very quickly have put the country into decline, have weakened our standing in the role in the world, have given comfort to the autocrats and hostile foreign powers that are not our friends. He's attacked our institutions, our system. He's undermined the American people's faith in democracy, and he stoked the cold civil war between us. He's made no pretense that he's president of all the people. And I'll remember this always, is that after John McCain lost to President Obama, that spring, David Plouffe, who ran Obama's campaign, invited me to lunch at the White House. And he and I, since both of us University of Delaware graduates, have become very good friends over the years. But I, I didn't know him that well. And after lunch, he asked me to go, if I wanted to go see the president. Um, president, you know, had invited me up to the Oval. It was the first time I'd been back in the White House, first time I had been back um, in the Oval Office since since the Bush administration. And President Obama was incredibly gracious. We, we talked for a few minutes. He filled the room. He was clearly the American president. He was in command, was proud that he was the president, was in awe of meeting another president in the Oval Office. And, and what I realize is, looking back on that moment, is Barack Obama wasn't my candidate, but he was always my president. And, and Trump makes no pretense that he's anything other than the leader of a faction or a tribe, which is exactly what George Washington warned the country about as he said goodbye. And we've come to the hour that he feared most. And it's dangerous for the future prosperity and security of the country. And we got to do something about it. And the first thing that we have to do to get to anything better than we have is to understand looking forward, we got to get rid of Trump because he's unfit, he's a failure at an epic level, and he has got zero capacity to lead this country out of the hole that we find ourselves in because we have a reality show TV host as president of the United States. And there's going to be a fundamental argument that's going to play out over the next couple months. And it's this. Is the American economy shattered because of coronavirus? Or is the American economy shattered because of the ineptitude and incompetence of Donald Trump's response to coronavirus? And it's the latter, of course. We, as a country, cannot endure four more years of this insanity, period. Uh, well, this has been great. Thank you. Thank you so much, Stephen. I look forward to uh, seeing you. I know you're a contributor to MSNBC, and I always enjoy it when you're on. And thanks for thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me, Senator. Thank you. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. 
Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember Remix and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam packed, music filled weekly party where hip hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.